When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 196, and we're going to be interviewing David. How are you doing today, David? Not bad at all. How about you? I'm doing well. It's bright and early for you. Thank you for getting up for this. I know uh, you mentioned you were in California, so what, it's, a, it's 9 a.m. for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, 9 a.m. I've already right. been to a meeting and back home, so. Oh, awesome. Good for you. Where was the meeting? It was a good meeting. It was good? Good meeting. Where was it? Uh, it's a place called the Valley Club. You know, it's we're LA, but San Fernando Valley. Very cool. So let's start off like I told you before, like I start off every episode. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. All right, my childhood. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually from uh, a town outside of Seattle, small town. Um, mom and dad were together. I grew up with four sisters. Um, oh, you know, for cool. me, everything seemed perfectly normal until about the age of 11. And at um, what point, at, at what time did uh, that happen? Well, first of all, how was it like growing up with four sisters? I grew up with two and that was rough. <laughs> I like to say I'm a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a brother. I'm a survivor of the situation. That's great. Yeah. So uh, what happened at 11? <clears throat> you know, a few things happened at 11. Um you know, at 11, I kind of learned, my, my father was an alcoholic, and I used to learn to watch uh, him come home from work, you know, and if I knew he had a large brown bag, that was beer, things were going to be okay that night. If he had a small brown bag, he was coming home with some whiskey, and, and I got the hell out of there, and I went and stayed at a buddy's house, so I mean, it was going to be a bad night for me. What kind of stuff would he do when he was drunk? Well, you know, he had the, the small town values, well, any values, you know, you, you don't hit women, you don't take your anger out on women. And I was the only other man in the house, boy, at the time. So, you know, I took some repercussions there, um, whether they were necessary or not. You know, I could have two sisters get into an argument and I'd take the crap for it. Um, really? It was that bad? It, at times. You know, it wasn't always. I had, I had a good childhood. I did. I don't remember much before the age of 11. I, um, have, the same, I have the same situation. My parents had gotten divorced when I was younger. For some reason, I don't remember much before the age of like 13 or 14, when is my memory kind of starts? Yeah. Because I was the only boy, too, so dad kind of took it out on me, like you said. Got a lot in common. Yeah. I mean, my father was a good man. He was. I'm not bad-mouthing him in any way. You know, that was my perspective at the time. You know, I, I just knew when to get away. Well, yeah, your feelings are absolutely valid. Doesn't mean It doesn't mean he's... Uh, one thing I've learned from addiction, doesn't mean you're a bad person. You do stupid shit. You might do bad things, but you're not a bad person. You're just... You're either freaking high or you're drunk or you're doing something stupid and you're, yeah. you're, you're not thinking straight. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that happened at 11 is, um, you know, I, I love the topic born, born an addict or become an addict, you know, and for okay. me, I really think I was born because I showed unjustified anger in situations where anger weren't necessary, you know, um, and my mom accused me of being on drugs when I was 11 years old. I had never drank or done a drug in my life, but it hurt. 
and it thought, you know, I just thought if that's what you think of me, that's what I'm going to give you. And that's really what set me out on my journey. And I'm not blaming my mother in any way, shape or form. She is the kindest, most loving person to this day I've met in my life. Um, but it triggered something in my mind. And I really thought if that's what you think of me, that's what you're going to get, you know? And, and it wasn't until 12 years old that I was introduced to the partying scene. But, but when I hit it, I was ready for it. Yeah. It's a shame. It's like you said, parents do stupid shit when they're younger or they, everybody's trying their hardest. So once again, it doesn't mean when they say something to you, it's trying to make you upset. But once again, like I said before, your feelings are totally valid. That's how it made you feel. That's how it made you feel. You know, yeah. that's one, one thing I'm taught or I've learned is, you know, like what I've said to you twice is that our feelings are valid. If someone makes you feel a certain way, doesn't mean they're a bad person. doesn't mean they should be punished. It means you made me feel shitty and it happens. Right. I think I mean, that was just my first real thing with authority. You know, it, it was my mom and she said something mm -hmm. that hurt me. And so my reaction was to lash out, you know. Yeah. Really against her and myself. <laughs> How was your dad with your mom? Uh, you know, I never saw my parents fight. Not one time in my life. I think twice I remember them not talking. Kind of a silent treatment thing. I never saw anything other than that that would even made me think. They divorced when I was in my early 20s. Um, you know, and I don't want to bring their dirt to the table, but that was, you know, over my dad's drinking and, and his choices. Yeah, I mean, it's part of your story. Yeah. So how'd you do in school? How was your uh, your grades like? Yeah. You know, I, I just kind of got by for the longest time. Um, you know, I had another major traumatic event at 14. Um, I had gone to a buddy who was having a kegger, you know, and, and I did what I did. I drank too much, and I went out to the front yard to get sick. And um, and I woke up with two detectives standing over me saying that a barn had burned down nine houses down the road. A and barn? That I was gonna have a to barn? A lie detector test. A barn. Uh, yeah. So three days later, my dad drove me into Seattle to take this lie detector test. And I knew I hadn't done it, but these two detectives had a stack of papers on their desk. And, and they said, um, they said, you know, you can sign these papers and you can go home today. Or if you don't sign them. They pointed, they said, you're going to go through this door over there and we'll tell you what happens to little boys who go through that door. I think since we're online, I shouldn't repeat what they said to me, but, um, you know, they basically told me that boys who go through that door get, you get you raped. Know, that, yeah, they get effed up the ass is what I was told. And I yeah. signed their papers out of, out of fear. I signed their papers, you know, um, I had no legal representation. My dad was in the lobby. Uh, they wouldn't let me talk to him. <clears throat> So I signed a paper so I could go home out of fear. But at that point in time, I hated all authority. I was done with authority. These guys had just, they tricked me, you know what I mean, into signing papers. And I took an arson charge at 14 years old. Um, and that put me on a real dark path, you know, with the thing that happened with my mom and then with these detectives, I had no respect for authority whatsoever. And once again, the thought crossed my mind, if that's what you think of me, that's what you're going to get. So it sucks. They never even probably found the real person that did it. No, I don't know if it was a person. It could have been a fluke thing. I have no clue. I know I couldn't have walked that far if I wanted to. <laughs> Too drunk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went outside to get sick and I just passed out. Like I said, I woke up to the two detectives standing over the top of me, you know. So, so it, it made for an interesting rest of my juvenile journey anyway. 
You know, I thought if that's what people think of me, that's what they're going to get. And um, I got deeper into my addiction, which so I hadn't been in any legal trouble before. So the court ordered me to go to a treatment. So I was in my first treatment center at 14 years old. I was introduced to 12 step program at 14 years old, you know, and, and I walked in and back then you could smoke in the meetings. You know, you could see about about two feet above the table and it was just smoke. And I could just hear some guy in the corner talking about how he lost his wife in his house. And I'm going, I don't even have a wife in a house. This doesn't, you know, I don't belong here. Uh, so my first introduction to 12 step meeting, I could not identify. I could not relate. And I just wanted my paper signed so I could go back and be with my friends, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, my addiction spiraled and I took on a burglary charge at 15 years old. Uh, I broke into my neighbor's house and I, I stole eight gallons of whiskey and a box of Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> Why the Twinkies? I don't know. Um, but so I took a charge quick, on that and I was court ordered to treatment again. And then 26. Quick, what, what was your poison alcohol? Uh, in the beginning. In the beginning, by 15, I was I was drinking, I was smoking weed regularly, and I was being introduced to cocaine. And that's where I started needing some help to feed my habit. Because at 15, I didn't even have a job. You know, uh, so I did 26 days in juvenile and I was court ordered to treatment again. And when I got out, I just decided that I didn't fit in this small town. I didn't fit in anywhere. Um, I loaded up a backpack and I had some some older buddies that were tearing out railroad tracks in southern Idaho. I threw some clothes and my prized possessions in his backpack and I started hitchhiking for Idaho. Uh, not even the mentality of taking food with me. You know what I mean? I just wanted out in a way. I didn't realize it was going to take me three days to get there. Um, there. You know, there's always been angels put in my life. And some man picked me up about a day and a half into my trip. And he says, kid, when's the last time you ate? And it had been a day and a half. And this guy got me some chocolate milk and donuts and some uh, some snacks to throw in my backpack. And he went 20 miles out of his way to get me to good location to get picked up to finish my journey. You know, uh, that's great. I love hearing stories like that because kind of gives you hope in the world. Like, OK, there are good people out there. Yeah, there, yeah. there really are. There, there's a lot of good people out there. Yeah, and I was in a place where I just hated people. I hate, I just I was trying to escape, you know, and and I didn't see the sign at the time, but that man was put in my life to show me that there is good people, you know. So I finished my journey, made it down to southern Idaho, got a job. Um, you know, I was driving a company truck around. We tore out railroad tracks out in the desert. And you know, my parents you came to visit me around. You said, you said you tore up railroad tracks? Yeah, we were tearing out railroad tracks that had been warped by the sun and had to be replaced. Okay, gotcha. So we were going through tearing them out. And in August, my parents got a hold of me around my birthday time. And they said they wanted to come down and see me. And I couldn't figure this out. What's what's the gig? What information were they trying to get? What you know, why were they coming to see me? And I just couldn't see that it was the unconditional love of a parent. I, I was so dark and in such a place that I just couldn't grasp that they wanted to come see me because they love me, you know. And they came down to see me. And my dad's like, you know, I, I had a place, I had this company truck and he's like, dude, you're 15 years old. You don't even have a driver's license. How are you pulling this off? And I'm like, I don't know, but just don't say nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had a pretty good life down here. Don't say anything. And, um, you know, I learned to survive at 15. I'd moved out of their home and I, my dad saw that I could do the deal. And it really dawned on me how much I was seeking his approval. I wanted his approval. And, um, 
you know, they, they spent a couple of days down there and they left and I'd had his approval and we finished the job at the end of the summer and uh, my parade got rained on, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought, well, I took my whole savings and I put it into buying some marijuana so I could deal marijuana because I didn't know what else to do. And um, I'd had a guy get me a quarter pound and man, as soon as I handed him the money, there was lights and everything and, and crap came down. Um, the whole house got raided. I was thrown in jail and the judge looked at me the next morning. He said, I don't know what to do with you. He says, you're a minor. Your parents are out of state. He said, I can't even prosecute you. He says, so the best deal I have on the table for you is I have an Amtrak ticket for five o'clock this afternoon. He said, you will not leave the side of the chief of police. We'll be with him the entire day. He will see you get on that train and you're never to come back to Idaho. And um, that's what I did. And I can say that to this day, I've never been back to Idaho. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I hopped on that train and I got back to Seattle, tail between my legs, called mom and dad. You know, I'm like, hey, I need to come home. I'm at the train station in Seattle. And, you know, it's about a 45, 50 minute drive from Seattle. And my dad came and got me, you know, and uh, my pride and ego crushed. And I had not succeeded like I set out to do. Um, and I stayed at their house. And, you know, I got back with the same people when I got back to, you know, town outside of seattle and um so i got the same results and it didn't take long before my addiction progressed and going through the house one day i found my old man's checkbook and him and i have the same name and i thought what's the harm i'm just signing my name it's not illegal right and my parents were in the process of trying to buy a house and they went to write a check for the down payment a month or two later and realized they were about 4500 bucks shy Wow, that's a lot uh, of money back then. <clears throat> it is. So at 17 years old, uh, I took a forgery. Well, I took a few forgery charges. Uh, you know, the police got a hold of my dad, and they came up with some kind of deal. All five places I'd been writing checks to were going to prosecute me, and they were going to they were going to hit me with adult. I was going to be prosecuted as an adult, or if my dad voluntarily brought me in, he swung him a deal that if they prosecuted me as a juvenile, he'd deliver me. And uh, what a tough ride to the police station. My dad was in tears. You know, I couldn't figure out why I'd done what I'd done. I had no reason to hurt my dad. I had no reason to steal from my dad. And I really didn't understand my addiction at the time. What kind of stuff you know, were you buying with money at such a young age? Uh, cocaine and, and methamphetamines. So you got into meth at this point? I, I was into meth at that point and had no idea that that was going to be uh, a 35-year deal for me, you know? Um but, but I went and served my nine months uh, in an institution. I got out when I was 18. An adult I prison? <clears throat> no, they kept me in a juvenile institution. They did prosecute me as a juvenile. They stuck to their word. Um, my time lapsed, and, and I've spent about three months in that institution being 18 years old. But they kept me there. And uh, I have was court-ordered to treatment while I was in there, a lockdown treatment center. Um, so this was my fourth treatment center before the age of 18 um all court ordered and i really went in there wanting to be somebody different you know and and i went in there open-minded and i was receptive to the program and i was doing well and then i met a girl i met a girl uh, in the treatment center oh yeah <laughs> and um you know we got caught sneaking around together and so i got the the consequences of that and instantly my attitude changed. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want the program anymore. I didn't want what they were offering. I was mad at authority again. 
and I just gave up on the whole deal. Um, they did completely complete me because I served the time I was supposed to there and I did what I was supposed to, but I wasn't receptive to the program anymore. Um, and I had to go back and finish out my time, which um, I was working on a, a department, department of natural resources work group. So I was getting, I think, $3.25 a day to run a chainsaw out doing pre-commercial thinning. And at the end of my nine months, when I got out between a small tax return and that, I think I had like 900 bucks and I got back to my parents' house. My buddy was there within 20 minutes and nobody saw me for a week. And I knew I couldn't go back to my parents' house broke uh, 900 bucks in, in a week. Um, so I just stayed out and about, you know, didn't even go back home, didn't check back in with them because uh, I was humiliated that I'd failed again, you know. Once again, where were you going if you had no money? Uh, at a girl, moved in with a girl, stayed at her house, uh, got a job with a local plumbing company. Um, you know, I, I didn't have to pay any rent to be there. I would, I would get paid on Friday and we'd be broke by Monday, you know, and, and that she was my routine also? for a while. Hmm? She partied with you? Uh, my girlfriend and her brother. Okay. You know, and, and. I had the job. I had the money. Like I said, I get paid on Friday and Monday morning. I'd be like, how am I going to get to work? I don't have gas money, you know? So, um, her and I didn't last too long. I ended up getting a studio apartment somehow barely making it and met another girl. And she had, um, she was motivated. She, she wanted more out of life and, and she kind of pulled me up for a while, you know, even though I had my addiction, so at 19 years old, I started a construction company and um, I didn't have to look back on money for 11 years. Her and I were together for 11 years. I ran the business for 11 years. Um, it was successful. Uh, like I said, I didn't, money wasn't an issue. So I was able to um, have my addiction and pay my bills and still get the new cars. We got a home. Um, so what I learned was that when society's not looking at you on the inside, when you look good outside, people don't question your inside there for 11 years. I, I was able to justify my addiction. I was still into the meth, still smoked weed daily, drank every chance I could, but people weren't asking me questions because I had two new cars. I had, you know, I, my son was born. Um, everything looked good on the outside. I've, <clears throat> I've said it before. It's so funny how, we we um relate money to our success that i used to say the same exact thing oh i'm one of the top salesmen where i work i make a lot of money i show up to work when i'm supposed to and you think just because you do good at your job like oh, i can't be an addict so like i said it's funny that you say that because i felt just the same way like who's that who's anyone to tell me i'm doing okay right well and and i knew at this point i mean i had been to four treatment centers actually five because uh, when her and I got married, she realized there was a problem. And, and I went in uh, to another treatment center to get her off my back. I wasn't there for me. So, um, but what I did learn is that I was able to hide how people viewed at me by being successful. So even though inside I'm tailspinning and I'm tearing, my, I'm tearing myself down thinking I don't deserve any of this because that, as an addict, that's what I do. You know, I have this front put up for everybody to see, but in my mind, I know I don't deserve it. So I'm destroying. And that's what happened to our marriage. I, I literally pulled the whole structure down over my head. 
um, went into a tailspin and after 11 years, I tore it all down. And, and that poor girl just had bought a, a ticket on the Titanic. She had no clue, you know. Uh, there was no reason for me to do any of that other than inside, I felt that I didn't deserve any of it. And I, I tore down the marriage, the business, the house, all of it, it was all gone. And it didn't bother me because I knew I could start back over. And, and I did. I got into another relationship 11 years again. Her and I married, had a couple kids together, had another business for 11 years. Things were fine until I tore it all down. You know, that's what I do. I build my life up and I tear it down because I think I don't deserve it. And and the poor people that, that are with me in that process, my God, I mean, I've had opportunities to make amends today. But I carried a lot of shame and guilt for a long time over that, you know, because they were just innocent bystanders, you know, and and they got caught up in in my disease, you know. Yeah, it's a shame the way it happens. How it, it affects everyone around us. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So, so I, I didn't. I, no, you go. You go first. I, I decided that I wasn't going to do any more businesses after that, and at. At 40 years old, I had to learn how to be an employee. I'd never been an employee before. Um, you know, 22 years of being self-employed, having whatever I wanted, doing whatever I wanted to. You know, my first job lasted about two weeks. The guy looked at me and he says, I don't think you realize this is my company. He says, you're fired. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about, dude? I'm bringing stuff to the table, you know, pride and ego. And yeah. And uh, I had to learn how to be an employee because I didn't know how at 40 years old. And that was interesting. What, what made you decide not to do business anymore on your own? stop being an entrepreneur um because the second ex-wife wanted me to continue business and she wanted half and i thought i'm not doing that you know pride and ego once again it's like why should i bust my ass and you not even have a job and get half of everything and so i said i just want to be an employee i just want to i don't want to deal with it anymore uh, and I have not gone back to having a business, although it's crossed my mind quite a few times and I know I'm capable. Because um, it's been years. I mean, her and I divorced in 2011. I mean, it's been a long time since then. Um, but now I think I'm, I've just gotten to be comfortable and just doing my hours. I don't bring homework or work home with me anymore. It's not a 24-7 thing. I just do my eight hours and then I have my life. Um but even since that divorce, there was a lot of uh, things that happened that, that led me to the life I have today. You know, it took a long time for me to be ready for recovery. You know, honestly, me being in the game in recovery, which didn't happen until uh, March of this year for me. Um, overall, I was out there for 40 years, you know, looking for the ways to beat it. You know, looking for the right dose, the right method of use, the right combination of being successful at using, you know, being introduced to the program at 14 years old, I spent 40 years looking how to beat this disease. I was going to be the one that was going to do that. I was going to figure it out. And, it, you know, it says we tried every method imaginable, and I did. You know, in, in 2015, I was going to outsmart my disease, and I went out and I got, well, I almost finished my degree in psychology and chemical dependency. You know, I was going to outsmart the disease since I couldn't figure it out on my own. I went, I went to college for three and a half years figuring out how to beat this thing. And, um, and March 3rd of, or March 2nd of this year, it beat me. I wound up in the hospital with um, dual kidney failure, sepsis, 
and my blood pressure was 58 over 36. Uh, they told me 20 more minutes, I'd have been dead. And um, I wasn't even looking to go to the hospital. You know, it, it had been a situation where um, I had just gotten a 1972 Ford truck the day before. Sat in the guy's garage for 10 years. I dumped some gas in the carburetor. I drove it home. It's like, yes, I'm going to restore this thing. And the next day I started cleaning up the outside and I just collapsed. Hit the ground. Don't know what happened. I had, I had done the shot of dope. I'm allowed to say that, right? Oh, yeah. I, wanted, yeah. yeah. I, I had done the shot of dope and it didn't come back right. I could tell. I could tell it was like gel or something. And it was the last of what I had at the moment. And I was waiting on my connection. And I'm like, that's all I got. So I did it anyway. Uh, knowing something wasn't right. I mean, it just didn't come back like it should have. And so a couple hours later, I, I just collapsed. And, and my girlfriend came out of the trailer. She's like, why are you on the ground? I'm like, I, I don't know, you know. So it's like, you need to go to the hospital. I said, no, let me come in and sit down for a while. And I did. I went in the trailer and sat down for a while. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to get back to work on my truck. And she says, well, we need cat food. And I said, all right, I'll run to the store and get cat food. And I walked over to my van and hit the ground again. Only this time I, I hit hard. I mean, I remember my head hitting ground. And I don't know how long I was laying on the ground, but she came out and she's like, why are you on the ground again? And I said, well, somebody beat my ass. I said, somebody's in my van and they beat my ass. Because the last thing I remember was trying to get in my van. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we're on five acres. And she's looking around going, there's nobody here. Nobody beat your ass, dude. Nobody beat your ass. I couldn't walk. I couldn't think. So I had to crawl the 80 feet back to my trailer. And um, I knew something wasn't right. I wasn't feeling right. I, you know, of course, I convinced myself I had the flu, you know. So I, I called my mom on the phone, told her I'm not feeling good. And she's like, nothing you're saying is making sense. You, you can't put together a sentence that makes sense. You need to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, nah, I'm just not feeling good. So uh, I have this one sister, bless her heart. She, um, she can feel when something's not right with me. Don't ask me how. It's been like that our whole life. You know, I can't, I can't even get on the phone and lie to her because she knows when something's wrong. Uh, she lived two hours away and she jumped in her truck and she started heading over to my house. Um, and thank God, because that saved my life. And she denies it to this day. You know, I didn't save your life. You saved your own life. But she picked me up when I wasn't going to do anything about it. And, and she got me in her truck and said, you're going to the hospital. And uh, we made it about a half mile to the, the fire station. She pulled over. She says, you're going to die in my truck. And she started banging on their door. And um, and they rolled out and, and they got me in an ambulance. And sure enough, she's right. You know. I, I didn't know till later on, but the dual kidney failure, the sepsis, and the low blood pressure, uh, I wouldn't have made it. So I was laying in the hospital, and here's where it got real for me. Two things crossed my mind. One was that because of COVID, you could only have one person come in the hospital room, and, and my sister that had brought me in was the one who was in the room that day, and, and she had told me that out in the waiting room, I had my mom my sisters, I had my, my three children, three grandchildren, two ex-wives, and my current girlfriend. And they were out there, they were out there crying and preparing to say their goodbyes to me. And these are the people I'd wronged my whole life with my addiction. And that hit me so hard. The people that I had done wrong, the people I had lied to, stolen from, cheated on, they're all out there crying, preparing to say their goodbyes to me. I didn't deserve the time or the energy they were putting into it. And that hit me hard. And the second thing that crossed my mind was, um, you know, 
in addiction, I've been praying every night. God, please don't let me wake up in the morning. Please. That's the only way out of this. Just please don't let me wake up. You know, and, and I think I'd been saying that prayer for pretty close to a year. And the thought crossed my mind that God wasn't going to let me die. And I better do something different. And uh, that opened the door just enough. You know, I, uh, I I was starting to be able to, you know, I couldn't really communicate with anybody when I was in the hospital because I couldn't put a sentence together. You know, I knew what was going on. And, and I could see my family looking down over my pathetic ass laying in that bed. And I had done this to myself. You know what I mean? And I knew that. Um, so in came a social worker on day three. And she had her three little brochures. I knew what they were. I've done the deal. Um, they were brochures for treatment. Two of them were local. And one of them was down in California. Um, this particular day, my oldest son was in the, in the hospital room with me. And he was just waiting to hear what I was going to say. And, and I told the lady, you know, I, by this time I could put sentences together. I said, I'm going to go to California. Just send me to California. I looked at my son and I said, I'm not coming home. You know, and 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 he just shook his head. He says, I, I get it, Dad. You know, I was in a toxic relationship that um, she didn't even come and see me in the hospital in the six days I was in there. But But it was deeper than that. My best friend of 45 years since kindergarten had also been my dealer for 35 years. I didn't know how to not call as a friend to see how he's doing, go to his house to visit him as a friend. And when I leave, he was my dealer again. I mean, constant fail after fail. So I knew I had to get away from everybody and everything. So my son and I talked and tried to figure out what I was gonna do. And um, I said, buddy, I can't even go home and get clothes. I said, if I go home and get clothes, my girlfriend's either gonna talk me out of going or I'm going to get loaded and I'm never going to make that plane. So he came in with some paper and um, I signed over the, the car to her. Um, I signed over the trailer that we lived in and I signed a letter saying that she could have everything there. So, you know, cause I didn't see her in the hospital. So I gave that stuff to my son and I says, can you handle these things for me? He says, yeah, daddy. So I'll, I'll you know, I, I gifted her the car, but, Legally, I needed to report it as sold. You know, I didn't want to have the liability of the car, but I was giving it to her. Same with the trailer. And so my sister went to the store and she bought me two changes of clothes. And I came to California with two changes of clothes. Um, I, I Everything that wasn't on that property, I gave to my son. I had a storage unit that had all my tools uh, from my construction company. I had a full wood shop. I love woodworking. Um, so I gave away everything I owned and I came to California with uh, desperation came to california with desperation because i was done you know like i said those two things that happened in the hospital hit me harder than anything ever has in my life um but it opened the door it opened the door for me to be ready for this um i know i'm just rambling at this point but um, no you're not you're not at all i think you're doing a great job and i'm just uh, i'm listening okay you know i, I came down here um got into a treatment center and I gave it everything I had for the first time in my life. I wasn't just there. I didn't care about the women. I didn't care about the outside issues. Um, what I cared about was changing my life. And that's, that's exactly what I was going to do. So they would take us to outside meetings and, you know, I'm in a place where I knew nobody. I, I didn't know a single person down here. I was glad it went down that way. But they take us to these outside meetings and I'd get up to the podium all scared and I'd just be like, you know, if we were in an AA meeting, 
I'd identify as an alcoholic, obviously. And I'm meeting, I'd identify as an addict. But I just stand up there and say, my name's David. I'm in treatment. I don't know anybody down here. Um, I need to know you people because the day is going to come. I'm going to walk out of the gates of that treatment center and I, I need support. And, and so people started coming up to me and giving me their phone numbers and, and their names. And, and, and then I'd see them at the next meeting. They'd be like, hey, how are you doing? And so I started building my network. You know, I, I found my sponsor before I got out of treatment. He had, he had my story, you know, and I didn't know it at the time, but um, he ended up being the father of somebody I was in treatment with. I had no clue because there was three houses we went through through the series. We had detox and then we had a transition and we had the final house, the IOP house. And, and, and the kid was a couple days behind me. So when I found this guy as my sponsor, I didn't even know it was his dad. But he came to the house a couple days later and I'm like, yeah, I got this guy. And I'm not going to say his name, obviously, but he's like, that's my dad. I'm like, you know, no clue. God shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the gift, he was he was the perfect sponsor for me because he had the same story. We were both union carpenters. We had the same drug of choice, the same lifestyle out there. And, you know, to me, that was just another sign. But But this man has been such a gift because he started taking me through the steps. You know, and and for me, the steps aren't something that did I get a check off and say, all right, step one's done, step two's done. No, these steps are when I complete them, I take the principles of those steps and I incorporate them into my life. And the gift is I started seeing my life change. I wasn't the same person anymore. You know, I really wasn't seeing it myself. It was other people pointing it out for me. Um, I wanted to get home and see my kids and grandkids. And so I, I tried making a trip at about three months. And financially, it didn't work out. I tried it about six months and I had my airfare and everything paid for. And, and I was not working at the time. So the day before I was supposed to go, the union called and says, we got a job for you. Come back to work. I'm like, yeah, I got this trip planned. They're like, you want to work or not? So I didn't even have time to the amount of time to cancel everything. So I lost my 580 bucks in airfare. But you know what? I decided that I didn't need to figure out why it didn't work out. It was just meant to be. And what I needed to do was keep going on my recovery and the things I need to be doing. It didn't matter why I didn't get to make that trip. It just wasn't meant, it wasn't meant to happen. My higher power intervened. I really think that, you know, whether I had bumped into the ex-girlfriend or somebody for whatever reason that didn't happen. And I was okay with it. I just stayed here and kept doing what I needed to do. Uh, kept working steps with my sponsor. And I don't think it was any coincidence that when I was on step nine, it worked out for me to be able to go back home and visit um, because I got to make amends to, to some people up there, you know, ex-wives, family, um, no contact with the girlfriends. She was pretty mad the way I left. Um, it was really hard when I was in treatment. I got a lot of nasty messages and nasty phone calls because really I didn't even get to say goodbye to her because I didn't see her. She just got all this paperwork saying she could have all my stuff and uh, she wasn't ready to get clean. She didn't want any part of it. So I knew I couldn't have anything to do with her, but she would call me when I was in treatment. You know, I was in my groups and in my classes and I checked my phone be 20 messages, you know, and none of them were nice. None of them were pretty. She was a victim. So I was continuing to send her money, hoping that she would see me doing better and she would want what I want, what I had, you know, and, and that's not the way it worked out, but I think that's pretty normal thinking for someone in my shoes. I just, I just wanted her to see me doing good and want to come down here, you know, um didn't go that way it wasn't part of the plan that's okay but but there was people i didn't want to bump into when i went back there so i didn't 
you know, I wasn't on social media saying I'm going back home. You know, I kept it real low profile and kept it about my family. Um, I did get to go back and make the amends and, and what a gift that was. What an absolute gift. So the timing was there and it happened when it was supposed to. Um, I was up there for five days. I, you know, I came back. I've continued working steps. I worked through all the steps with my sponsor. Like I said, an amazing man, you know, he's, because uh, I don't always have the best thinking, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't you get clean and life's amazing, you know. Um, I found a lot of ups and downs, a lot of hurdles in early recovery that, you know, normally would have taken me out. Um, I was in my first sober living down here doing an IOP and my union insurance expired. So I went to group one day and they're like, you can't come in. And actually you got to get your stuff out of the house too, because you don't have insurance anymore. So I'm like homeless and sobriety in my car. I'm like, you know, um, I knew how to live in my car and my addiction because there was no accountability. There was no responsibility. Nobody knew where I was. So that was my comfort zone in my addiction was my car. But here I am clean and sober. And I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? You know, so the first thing I did was I went to where I'm accustomed to doing meetings at in the parking lot. And I thought, I'm going to stay right here because I'm grounded here. There's meetings here. And about 1230 that night, somebody was slamming on the trunk of my car. I was screaming at people that weren't there. You know, and I'm, I'm a small town. I'm not used to L.A., but I'm adapting. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to get out and puncture this guy. I mean, I'm really going to have to puncture this guy. <laughs> And thank God he went chasing the imaginary people across the parking lot. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, and I had, I had my big book, my basic text, a highlighter and 80 bucks. And as soon as morning hit, I went and got a tent and a sleeping bag. And I went up to a local lake and paid for a campsite. And for the first time in my life, put in a situation, I was in a solution. I just sat there highlighting my book and I would run down to town where I had reception. I would call sober livings, call my sponsor. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. You know, and, and after three or four days, the sober living called me back and said, we got a spot for you. So that was the first hurdle in recovery that I successfully accomplished, you know, and, and I didn't do it alone. I was talking to my sponsor and, you know, I was, um, I was up out of meeting range, but I was staying in my books. You know what I mean? And I got through it and I was like, this is okay. You know, this is okay. So that was my first hurdle. I, I think the second one I ran into was, um, I had taken on a job and on the third day, the guy made me a foreman. That's what I know how to do. You know, I've ran businesses. I'm, I'm right on. Gave me some blueprints. And on day six, we had an inspection and it didn't pass inspection. And the guy's just furious with me. How could this happen? I'm like, well, look, everything's as per plan. He says, these are the expired plans, you dumb son of a bitch. And I said, well, those are the plans you gave me, <laughs> you know? And so he fired me on the spot. And it's kind of funny because I remember grabbing my lunchbox and my tool bags and I'm walking off the job smiling. And one of the guys like, dude, what are you smiling about? You just got fired. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't punch the guy in the face and I'm not leaving with an armload of tools as collateral until I get my check. And he's looking at me like I'm nuts. But for me, that was a huge accomplishment. You know what I mean? I left on good terms knowing that I hadn't done anything wrong. I really hadn't. Um, but the way I was reacting to the situations was new to me and it was a good feeling. And so I was leaving after getting fired with a smile on my face and everybody thought I was nuts. But for me, that was a good day. You know, I didn't result to old behaviors to get through that situation. And uh, and I knew my higher power had a better plan for me anyway, which was the case. Uh, so I got through that. So I started 
take a normal life situation <clears> that <throat> should have, could have, would have taken me out any other time in my life and realizing that I could get through them sober. I didn't have to use over that, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm building up life experiences. I'm, I'm continuing the steps. And so now I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm no dummy. I know I'm always one bad decision away from my life changing again. So I'm like, I need to start doing some other things. I'm like service work. I'm, I need to start getting into service work. So I, I took on a GSR position. Um, even more recently, I've gotten on H and I. I love the H and I panels, man. I love carrying the message to the detox centers and the treatment centers. Um, opportunities to lead and and speak. Um, you know, I there's one thing my sponsor and I don't quite see eye to eye on, and uh, I'm about recover out loud. I'm about carry that message. Yep. And and he wants to debate with me about traditions and anonymity. Um, and we've agreed to disagree on that. Any other part of my life I can discuss with him. Like I've I've written a book too, uh, since I've been clean and sober. And he's not about that. He's not about that at all. Because he says it's anonymity. And I said, Well, you know what? I, I published under David M. I don't use my last name. I don't, there's no names, there's no situations. There's nothing in that book. It's just about the insanity of addiction, the impact it had on the people's lives around me, and that there's a solution. I'm like, there's no anonymity. So we just don't talk about that. Other yeah. than that, he's an amazing man. But I recover out loud. Any chance I get to carry the message, I absolutely do. You I, know? I would say <clears throat> my response then would be, Bill W. wrote the book. <laughs> so obviously writing a book is not a bad thing. <clears throat> right. Because technically right. he recovered out loud. Everybody knew who he was and what he was doing. Yeah. Well, you know, and I saw your podcast on social media. You know, yeah. I, I love being on TikTok. Why? Because I want to lift people up. I want to lift people up. I don't care what form of recovery they have. Any form of recovery that works for somebody, I'm not going to discredit it. It might not be the, the program I use, but that doesn't matter. If it works for somebody, I support that. I'm all about that. Let's lift each other up. Recovery is recovery, and that's what I'm about. So I do choose to recover out loud. And it's not about judgment or putting anybody down, man. It's about anybody who successfully gets 24 hours. You not only have my respect, how can I help you? You know? Uh, and I really try and live by that today. And I, I got to say that I have an amazing life today. You know, I'm in awe. And if I stay out of my head, because in my head, sure, I can think I should be driving this car and I should, you know, I'm only nine months clean and sober on Tuesday. Tuesday, I'll have nine months. Um, I'm not going to rebuild my life in nine months, you know, so I have to stay out of my head because it's really easy to think I should be at a certain plateau or a level or I should have certain things. But if I can stay present and in the moment, that's where I'm really supposed to be. And that's what I strive for today. Stay out of my head and in my heart because that's where recovery is at for me. Yeah, everybody recovers differently. So then towards the end here, I just want to ask you one last question. Uh -huh. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Man, you know, there's a couple things people hear me say all the time. Um, you know, I give this everything I have because it's everything I have. Um, I think that attitude and perspective influence the outcome of any given situation. So what I mean by that is I try and stay positive at all things. There's a gift in every situation. I don't always get to see it as I'm going through it. 
you know, life likes to jump up and punch us in the face. But, but a lot of times I look back and I see the gift in the situation. So I treat life like it is a gift because it really is. You know, I've been given a second chance. I've been given a chance to carry the message and make a difference. So I treat my life every day like it's a gift because it is. This is true. All right. So uh, did you have anything else you want to throw in? I mean, it's been a great interview. How do you feel? I, I, you know, I feel amazing. I feel pumped. I, I love doing this. I think it's great. Uh, it was a great opportunity to get to meet you and know you. I appreciate this opportunity. All right, great. No, it's no problem. I really am honored you're willing to come on here and tell your story, you know? All right, so sit tight for me for a few minutes. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media, such as TikTok, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr. You can also check us out at www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of resources as well as free literature. So I hope you heard uh, what you liked what you saw and heard today. And until next time.